let's take our imagination back to 1862 in the Jewish area of Vienna. And there's a young mother who's trying to convince her son, her six-year-old son, that we come from dust and we return to dust. <clears throat> He's not having it. So she takes her hands and she rubs them together quickly. And she produces some blackish scales of epidermis and she says, see. He finally acquiesces, but it doesn't make any sense to him. <clears throat> Two years later, this precocious young man began reading Shakespeare at eight years old. And he came across this part of Henry IV, part one. <clears throat> Immediately after King Henry IV sending the troops out to fight, Falstaff says to Prince Hal, Hal, if you see me down in the battle and bestride me so, tis a point of friendship. And Hal says, nothing but a colossus can do thee that friendship. <clears throat> Say thy prayers and farewell. Falstaff says, I would toward bedtime, Hal, and all well. And Hal says, why? Thou owest God a death. <clears throat> and he exits. Falstaff replies to himself at this point, Tis not due yet. I would be loath to pay him before his day. This young boy at eight years old reading the Schlegel Teak, uh, tra German translation, reads the line, Thou owest God a death, du bist Gott einen Tod schuldig. He remembers it later in his life, and he writes that this helped him understand his mother's dust-to-dust -dust lesson. Although he incorrectly remembered it as, du bist Natur einen Tod schuldig. You owe nature a death. When this young boy was 16 years old, he had his first crush and went back to his, his birthplace and fell in love with a young lady named Gisela Fluss. But he was too shy. He couldn't tell her that he liked her. And he wrote to his friend Edward, blaming his unsinnigness Hamletdom, his ridiculous Hamletdom, as to why, for his incapacity to express his feelings to the girl. Ten years later, the boy now had the courage to ask a woman to marry him. And she said yes. And so, during their courtship, his fiancée wrote to him in a letter that she was flirting with the idea of drowning while swimming. He replies in the letter, quote, There must be a point of view from which even the loss of the loved one would seem tr a trivial occurrence in the thousands of years of human history. But I confess I take the opposite extreme one, in which the event would be absolutely equivalent to the end of the world. But at, le at least the world so far as I'm concerned. When my eyes can see no more, it can continue. What is Hecuba to me? The shy boy has grown into the more resolute Hamlet, who, in the oh what a rogue and peasant slave am I soliloquy, uses the player's theatrical display of seemingly genuine feelings for the legendary Hecuba to contrast with his own inability to leap to action against Claudius. The young man became a famous doctor. <clears throat> In 
and he invented a form of treatment that not only helped people who suffered from mental disorders, but also transformed how people saw themselves. But not everyone agreed with him. Many fought against his new discovery, and to his detractors he wrote, quote, Many details, however, seemed to me to be so extraordinary and incredible that I felt some hesitation in asking other people to believe them, so that there was nothing left for me but to remember the wise saying that there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our philosophy. Anyone who could succeed in eliminating his pre-existing conditions even more thoroughly could no doubt discover even more such things. In 1938, near the end of his life, the famous doctor, now a dying man, wrote a letter to his brother Alexander bequeathing him his stash of cigars and adding the rest is silence. <clears throat> the boy, the man, the doctor, the Shakespearean was of course Sigmund Freud. Freud was fascinated with Shakespeare and the plays exerted a huge influence on him and on the development of his work, psychoanalysis. Siegfried Prower wrote that the plays were a means for Freud's self-constitution. He quoted from or alluded to Shakespeare's plays 107 times in his writings, including uh, letters and um, written text during his 43-year writing career. He quoted from 18 of the 37 plays. There are 38 plays, but one wasn't translated into German at the time. So that's half of the almost half of the plays. The play he quoted from the most, of course, was Hamlet. 51 times, 50% of the time quoting from Hamlet. 16 times from Macbeth, 8 times from Julius Caesar, 6 times from Henry IV, part 1, 4 times from King Lear, and an article that is partly written about a scene in The Merchant of Venice. <clears throat> Freud's texts that were the most Shakespearean, of course, the interpretation of dreams. Sixteen quotations or allusions to Shakespeare in the interpretation of dreams. Jokes and the relation to the unconscious, eleven in there. The uncanny, smallish article, seven in there. Introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, 1916, five. Delusion and dream in William Jessen's Godiva, four references to Shakespeare. Totem and taboo, four references to Shakespeare. He does some analysis of Richard III, character analysis of Richard III and Lady Macbeth in the essay, Some Character Types Met With in Psychoanalytic Work, 1916. <clears throat> His letters are filled with references to Shakespeare. And then, of course, there's the authorship controversy, which we may get into it at some point. <clears throat> Some of the references are simply proverbs, and these don't necessarily show an influence, but they show that Shakespeare was on his mind. In an 1875 letter to his friend Edward Silverstein, complaining about his boring university studies, he writes, words, words, words. <clears throat> More interesting than that, in a second letter to Silverstein on the 7th March of the same year, we can see a glimpse of Freud's developing political consciousness. He asked Silverstein to tell him something about the Austrian version of socialism that is similar to what he found in John Stuart Mill's writings, which he was translating into German. Freud was translating into German. 
for it seems to be considering socialism as an alternative to a society when he writes, quote, There is room for improvement, for a good deal is rotten in this prison called Earth. He combines Marcellus's line from Hamlet that something is rotten in the state of Denmark with Hamlet's line that Denmark's a prison. This is the only place where Freud reads Hamlet as a critique of society. <clears throat> Immersed as he was in Mill's writings, he might have been exploring a Marxist reading of Hamlet. The instance, though, proved to be an isolated one. He never again saw that play in those societal terms. <clears throat> he uses Polonius's line, brevity is the soul of wit, and Hamlet's thrift, thrift, Horatio, to explain jokes and condensation, condensation respectively. Sometimes he makes some mistakes about the lines. He reads them incorrectly, or he reads them in an awkward manner. <clears throat> in the Ratman case study, Freud makes a mistake in comprehending Hamlet's poetry to Ophelia when discussing the domination of compulsion and doubt in the mental life of an obsessive neurotic. He writes that, quote, a man who doubts his own love may, or rather must, doubt every lesser thing. He inserts a footnote here, saying, So in the love verses addressed by Hamlet to Ophelia, Doubt thou that the stars are fire, stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Hamlet's poem to Ophelia is not an example of a man doubting his love. It's exactly the opposite. While doubt is the theme of the play, Hamlet is at that point of writing the poem before the action depicted in the play, and before he found Ophelia spying on him for the court, at the height of his certainty about love for, for Ophelia. <clears throat> in his 1937 Construction and Analysis, written later in his career, Freud quotes a line from Hamlet with a very revealing metaphor. He is explaining that if an analyst offers an incorrect interpretation, it is only a momentary waste of time. It doesn't lead the analyst sand astray, because it will ultimately lead to the right answer when it is denied by the analyst sand, and new material comes to life. Freud writes, quote, In this way, the false construction drops out as if it had never been made. And indeed, we often get an impression as though, to borrow the words of Polonius, our bait of falsehood had taken a carp of truth. The lines that Freud is quoting are spoken by Polonius as he orders his man Rinaldo to spy on his son, Laertes. The scene comes immediately after Hamlet's interview with the ghost and his line that time is out of joint. Polonius' orders are a dramatic example of Hamlet's assessment that society in, the society in which he lives, corrupt court with an obsessive penchant for spying, <clears throat> more than just a spy, Polonius is a father who is willing to stain his son's reputation in an effort to maintain his control. On the surface, it seems unfortunate that Freud chooses this metaphor to exemplify the functioning of psychoanalysis. It is a parapraxis in which Freud betrays an unfavorable view of the nature of his therapy. The list of offenses that Polonius asks Rinaldo to use as bait of falsehood in order to find the carp of truth about Laertes reads like a list of symptoms that one might reveal to a psychoanalyst. Wildness, wantonness, gaming, drinking, fencing, swearing, quarreling, and drabbing. At its most innocent, this pair of practice reveals that psychoanalysis, like Polonius, is a scopophilic spy that fishes for its analysand sexuality and vices. A little more sinister reading could be that Freud may be unconsciously identifying with the agenda of control that is a feature of the Danish court in Hamlet, 
and Anosan hands over a great deal of power to her analyst when she discloses all of her best guarded secrets. Freud surely understood this feature of the psychoanalytic relationship. <clears throat> now, when, before I go on to the formative influence, I want to mention that Freud's reading of Shakespeare was mediated through a number of other literary uh, figures. Goethe would be one, possibly his second favorite poet. Um, Heinrich Heine is another one. Both of them um, heavily influenced by Shakespeare. And the Danish uh, literary critic George Brandis, who Freud liked, read his books, uh, gave his books as a present to his uh, fiancée, and, um, and met as well. Um, I make the case in my thesis, although I won't go too much into it tonight, that um, Freud was indirectly influenced by Hegel's dialectic. That psychoanalysis is in fact dialectic, even though we don't see his books, Hegel's books, in his, in his library. <clears throat> if somebody wants to go into that deeper during the question time, I can go into that. <clears throat> the two pillars of psychoanalysis, the Oedipus complex and the um, death drive, are formatively influenced by Shakespeare. The first hint of the Oedipus complex, Oedipus complex, appears in Freud's unpublished draft N that he wrote to Fleece. Freud writes, hostile impulses against parents, a wish that they should die, are also an integral con constituent of neurosis. They come to light unconsciously as obsessional ideas. It seems as though this death wish is directed in sons against their father and in daughters against their mother. Uh, this was, uh, draft end was enclosed in Freud's 31 May 1987 letter to Fleece. That spring, Freud began his own analysis. In October 1897, whilst in the middle of this historical first psychoanalysis, Freud wrote to Fleece about three very significant events. These will become central to the construction of the Oedipus complex theory. He uses Shakespeare's plays to handle the feelings that arose from these events. First, he discloses that his nursemaid was his teacher in sexual matters. He had a dream that included an image of a woman bathing him in reddish-brown water, and after, after she had bathed in it. In his 1905 Three Essays on Sexuality, Freud gives more details in a disguised autobiographical statement, quote, it is well known that unscrupulous nurses put children to sleep by stroking their genitals, end quote. Then he writes that his mother had gone to lie for her next pregnancy, that while his mother had gone to lie for his next pregnancy, his nurse was arrested for theft after having been accused by his much older stepbrother. When young Freud cried for his mother and his nurse simultaneously, he had condensed them into one. His brother told him that she was eigenkestelt, uh, imprisoned. It was a pun he was using for uh, being imprisoned, <clears throat> meaning boxed up. Two-and-a-half-year-old Freud thought that she was in the house's wardrobe, Keshton, and demanded that his brother open it. The memory holds a significant position as it is set between his admission that his nursemaid fondled him and his next disclosure in that letter that he desired his mother and was jealous of his father. Freud writes, Quote, I have found in my own case falling in love with the mother and jealousy of the father, and now I regard it as a universal event of early childhood. The Kashtan memory will become an image that influences Freud's reading of the Merchant of Venice, a reading that helped him handle his fear of the death of his mother, fear of the death of his mother, and of his own death. 
This reading will play a significant role in the development of the theory of the death drive. <clears throat> his self-disclosure about his feelings towards his mother and his father will influence his reading of Hamlet and the development of the theory of the Oedipus complex. These two theories, the death drive and the Oedipus complex, central pillars of psychoanalysis, are rooted in Freud's self-analysis and in his use of Shakespeare's plays to read his own drama. <clears throat> Freud does not linger on his self-disclosure. He moves quickly from self-disclosure to theory-making and reaches for the two plays for two plays to support the validity of his theory. He writes, quote, If that is so, we can understand the riveting power of Oedipus Rex, in spite of all his objections raised by reason against the presupp presupposition of destiny. And we can understand why later dreams of destiny were bound to fail so miserably. Our feelings rise against any arbitrary individual compulsion of faith, such as proposed in uh, Die Anfrau, a play by Grillparzer, Grill but the Greek legend seizes upon a compulsion which everyone recognizes because he feels its existence within himself. Each member of the audience was once, in German fantasy, just such an Oedipus, and each one recoils in horror from the dream fulfillment here transplanted into reality, the whole quota of repression which separates his infantile state from the present one. In Oedipus Rex, Freud sees the validation for his Oedipus complex theory and normalization of his own desires. Moreover, his reading of the play places Freud in a metaphorical relationship with the Theban hero. Freud is Oedipus. This is the first link between the two men. Many others will follow. In the next paragraph of the letter, Freud says, Fleetingly, the thought has passed through my head that the same thing may be at the bottom of Hamlet as well. I'm not thinking of Shakespeare's conscious intention, but believe, rather, that a real event stimulated the poet in his representation, and that his unconscious understood the unconscious of his hero. How does Hamlet, the hysteric, justify the words, thus conscious does make cowards of us all? How does he explain his irresolution in avenging his father by the murder of his uncle, the same man who sends his courtiers to the death without a scruple, and who is positively precipitate in murdering Laertes? Notice the parapraxis there. Hamlet doesn't murder Laertes, he murders Polonius. <clears throat> How better than through the torment he suffers from the obscure memory that he himself contemplated the same deed against his father out of passion for his mother, and use every man against his desert, and who should escape whipping. A line from Hamlet. His conscious is the unconsciousness sense of guilt, and it is not his sexual alienation in his conversation with Ophelia, and is not his sexual alienation in his conversation with Ophelia, typically hysterical, and his rejection of the instinct that seeks to beget children. And finally, his transferal of the deed from his own father to Ophelia's. And he does not in the end, in the same, does he not in the end, in the same remarkable way as my historical patients, bring down punishment on himself by suffering the same fate as his father of being poisoned by the same rival. End quote. These two plays are commandeered by Freud to provide a legitimate and universal context for the content of his self-analysis. Two years after writing the letters to Fleece, Freud published the contents of his self-analysis as a universal theory in the interpretation of dreams. Indeed, in his letter to Fleece, he moves from the personal to the universal immediately with the help of the two plays. When Freud presented the Oedipus complex theory to the world in the interpretation of dreams, the personal was erased and the stories were written as if they were case studies, examples of universal truths. 
Freud's disclosure to Fleece, I have found in my own case, too, falling in love with my mother and jealousy of my father, becomes, in the interpretation of dreams, quote, being in love with one parent and hating the other parent are among the essential constituents of the stock um, psychical impulses which formed at that time and which is of such importance in determining the symptoms of later neurosis. Freud feels that the precipitating event that caused Shakespeare to write Hamlet is that Shakespeare's father died right before Hamlet was written. <clears throat> Freud writes about Shakespeare. I observe in a book by Shakespeare, uh, on Shakespeare by George Brandis a statement that Hamlet was written immediately after the death of Shakespeare's father in 1601. That is, under the immediate impact of his bereavement, and as we may well assume, while his childhood feelings about his father have been freshly revived. It is known, too, that Shakespeare's own son, who died at an early age, bore the name of Hamnet, which is nearly identical to Hamlet. Here the mechanism for converting the author's repressed wishes into a dramatic text is revealed. It is the process of deferred action, nachträglichkeit, followed by sublimation. The first step of these dynamic processes occurs when the infant or child experiences sexuality. This may take the form of sexualized behavior from adults in the child's life or the child's own sexual and aggressive wishes. After puberty, with the dynamic pressure of sexual hormones, the memory of sexualization or aggression, which has been buried during a latency period, arises again and is confronted by the newly developed superego injunctions against it. The resulting clash of interests in the person's mind causes anxiety. If the anxiety is large enough, it will result in neurotic symptoms, such as defense mechanisms that bind the anxiety. One of the most sophisticated defense mechanisms is sublimation, whereby desires and drives which are tied to childhood experiences are repressed back into the unconscious, displaced laterally into a socially acceptable activity, and expressed as this activity. The repressed desire can also be triggered by events such as the death of the person uh, whom one wanted to kill or sleep with. This is Freud's explanation for the genesis of Hamlet in Shakespeare's unconscious. Shakespeare's memory of desire for his mother and aggression against his father was awakened through deferred action in 1601, when his father died. The resultant anxiety was handled by sublimation, the creative writer's choice defense mechanism expressed through his construction of artworks. Freud's reading of Hamlet personalizes the play for the audience. It posits similarity between the drives and desires of the fictional characters and those of the real audience, and with this raises, R-A-Z-E-S, the fourth wall. In Freud's literary criticism, the function of the critic is to show how the creative writer offers audiences a glimpse of their unconscious landscape. The writer does this when he engages his defense mechanism, sublimation, in an effort to handle his own problematical unconscious desires. Since sublimation retains a connection to the primary desire, fictional texts, which are, according to Freud, the product of the creative writer's sublimation, stimulate in the audience a journey of regression back to their primary desires. 
Freud's self-analysis guided him through his own unconscious, and he turned to dramatic literature for assistance in this journey. Then, like the creative writer, Freud allowed his unearthed knowledge about himself to inform and be sublimated into his theory-making. Similar to the plots of dramatic literature, Freud's theories are meant to resonate with the hidden self-knowledge inside all of Freud's patients and readers. Those who deny the content of the unconscious landscape and its correlates in dramatic literature are repressing their own self-knowledge. In this project, Freud acts as the daring discoverer, the adventurous archaeologist exploring the unexplored and reporting back. He admits that poets have been there before him, and for this reason, he trusts their guidance. He makes them his allies in his quest and derives courage from them. The poet's method, seen through Freud's theory, is also Freud's method. The influence that Shakespeare had on Freud is methodological. According to Freud, the dramatic mirror works because, quote, we're all ill. That is, neurotic. End quote. The audience observes a dramatic hero's strength and capacities, which derives energy from his repressed sexuality. In his essay, Psychopathic Characters on the Stage, Freud argues that the spectator in the theater can identify with the hero, a role which the spectator longs for, and that, that longing is based on the need for his unconscious desire to be aroused and discharged. The hero's moment of recognition, anagnoresis, is for Freud also the, moment, the audience's moment of recognition. Before this moment, the unconscious desire has built up a charge of energy in the audience and is experienced as displeasure. The charge can be di discharged safely through sublimation. In order to return to pleasure, which Freud de defines as the absence of charge, an audience member experiences a dramatist sublimation through the fate of his characters. This sublimation, with its resultant decrease in the charge of non-civilized desires, is necessary for the functioning of civilization. <clears throat> if, during his own self-analysis, Freud uses reading of Hamlet for his own anagnoresis, then his identification with Hamlet served him as the means to sublimate his Oedipal wishes, and bring them forth in the form of a theory. In this sense, he acted similarly to the creative writer. He did the hard work of self-recognition and played it for the world on the scientific stage, albeit most of the time as a disguise, in a disguise. Fred never told the world that he desired his mother and felt jealous of his father. Those were in letters that he wrote to Fleece, and when those letters were discovered, when he discovered that those letters were still around, he asked for them to please be destroyed. Um, fortunately, they weren't, and we have them today. <clears throat> One way in which Shakespeare's plays influenced Freud as a means for sublimating at least five of his most problematic personal issues. Due to the matter in which Freud developed his theories, it is impossible to separate his personal issues from the work in the development of psychoanalysis. <clears throat> I know it's sometimes frowned upon to do a lot of biological work, and when I work with Marx, I don't do a lot of biological work, but with Freud, you really have to, to the method. First, there is a span of 40 years between Freud's first readings of Shakespeare at eight years old and his discovery of the Oedipus Complex, 
and Death Drive at 40 years old. Shakespeare's plays help him handle his own undiscovered Oedipus complex and Death Drive during those years. Secondly, after he discovered the two drives, he presented him to the world through Shakespeare's plays, thereby allowing the extent of his own neurosis to remain opaque to the world. Thirdly, Shakespeare's plays were a medium through which he worked through his own fear of failure and his own fear of incompetency. Fourthly, he uses readings of the plays to process his relationship with the three most important women in his life, his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter, his third daughter, Anna. Fifthly, he used the plays to handle the extent of his death drive that went beyond his understanding of it. Freud's sublimation of these issues was not complete. And I'll discuss that last topic in a second. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to talk about the death drive, but more so just off the top of my own head. So in 1913, Freud was um, editing one of his books. Actually, it was in 1912 he was editing one of his books. And he had this, this sudden thought that there was a similarity between the three women, the three daughters in King Lear, the three caskets in Merchant of Venice, uh, the three sisters in Cinderella, the three goddesses in the Paris, Judgment of Paris. There might be another three in there. He said, he asked uh, Rank and uh, Hans Sachs to go out and do the research the uh, mythological research, and they did. He wrote to Abraham about it, and in a couple of days, he had his conclusions. So this was hot in his mind. But it wasn't published until 1913. And it was published as Das Motive der Keschenwall, which means the motive of the casket choice, which unfor unfortunately in 1925, Hubbard translated as the theme of the three caskets. Well, that's a mistranslation, because Vol is choice, Kestin Vol is choice. He discusses the three caskets in The Merchant of Venice. Um, I'll just say a little bit about Merchant of Venice. I'm not sure if every, but probably most people have, have read it or seen it. But um, there are three caskets that the protagonist, Bassanio, he must choose one of the caskets. If he gets that casket, if he gets it right, and he'll know it's right because when he opens it, there'll be a picture of his beloved Portia in it. Then he gets Portia, and he gets the island that she lives on, and all the wealth in the kingdom. And most importantly for Bassanio, as he clearly tells us in the first act of The Merchant of Venice, he gets to pay off his debts. This is what he's seeking. If he gets his wrong, if he gets it wrong, the wrong casket, he can never again ask a woman to marry him. He can never be with a woman again. So that's the gamble of the three caskets. So, in The Merchant of Venice, which of course is a problem play, but if we read it straightforward, Bassanio is the comic hero. He does choose the right casket, he chooses the third one. He gets Portia, and in the fifth act, well, actually in the fourth act they marry, and in the fifth act they finally, at the very end, go off to bed and have that comic creation of the air that we're looking for in the comedy. Freud does not touch Shylock at all doesn't even mention Shylock. And I asked uh, Jay Geller, who writes on issues of Freud and Judaism, why? In fact, it was here over at the other, the other room. Why? And he said, what year was it? And I said, it was 1913. He said, during those years, 
Freud was really trying to backpedal away from any references to Judaism. Because the world was saying that psychoanalysis was a Jewish science, and he was trying to, to move away from that. And of course, Jung is wrapped up in all that. Right? So he doesn't analyze Shylock. If he would have, then he could have worked with the problem play aspect of it. Instead, he was working with The Merchant of Venice as a straight comedy. So as a straight comedy, we would expect that choosing the third casket, getting the, the, uh, the fair Porsche, the fair and wealthy Porsche, and being able to pay his debts is something good. It's something that he wants. Freud says that what he's actually doing, what he's actually choosing, is death. And the way that he works towards that is he said, caskets equal women in dream symbolism. And whenever you have three women, the third one is always death. So in King Lear, Cordelia is the one in, whom, in whose arms King Lear dies at the end. Um, there's a step in there I, I didn't say. Um, the third woman is, is silent. Um, and that silence stands for death. Now one might ask in the, Paris of, in the Judgment of Paris, how is Aphrodite silent? Well, Freud read it in um, a play called La Belle Hélène in which it said, uh, la troisième, la troisième, à la troisième, elle ne dit rien. My French is terrible, but it says, the third one, the third one, she said nothing. So he takes it from, from that play. Mysteriously, though, in the middle of the essay, Freud drops his discussion of Bassanio. Finishes the essay talking about King Lear. And he says, Lear is choosing the love of the beautiful young daughter that he has, so this is a, um, a wish, a wish fulfillment, right? Earlier, though, he said that what Bassanio is doing is reaction formation. Well, wish fulfillment and reaction formation are two different things. Uh, King Lear choosing the daughter instead of death is not reaction formation. Reaction formation is when you're trying to push down an unconscious desire that you actually have and... Um, come up with the opposite one. That would be Bassanio. But Bassanio was dropped out in the middle of the essay. And what I'm arguing in my thesis is that the reason is because the essay was written in 1913 when Freud has not developed the theory of the death cry fully until 1920. So he doesn't have the words yet to go there. But he's working with it incompletely. But why is that striking him so much? A little story about a six-year-old boy who didn't believe dust to dust. And his mother says, look, we're going to return to dust. And he looks up at his beautiful and slim mother, who he loves, has told us that he loves, well, told the fleece that he loves, but we found out. <laughs> She's death. She is directly, he's looking right at death. I told you that he has three very significant women, his mother, his wife, and his third daughter. It is almost literally in the arms of his third daughter that he dies. If she could have been the one who injected him with the morphine, it would have been in her arms that he dies. He didn't let anybody else nurse him but Anna, and she nursed him all the time, and he told her, I want no emotion about this. He wanted her silent. The connections are all there, and if we're, as Freud says, have the courage, 
to look deeply into it, we can see the death drive developing in Freud's mind as he's working to handle his relationship to the women who he loves, Oedipally, but at the same time sees as death, the two central pillars of psychoanalysis, <clears throat> which he is handling with Hamlet and the Merchant of Venice. Some of the influence can be seen in deeply embedded allusions to Shakespeare. Psychoanalysis is profoundly Shakespearean. David Hillman, in a book called Marx and Freud, Great Shakespeareans, <clears throat> writes that um, the founding of psychoanalysis in Freud's 15 October 1897 letter to Fleece is an intertextual event with the literature, with Oedipus Rex and Hamlet. Psychoanalysis has been called the Geisteswissenschaft, uh, that is, the, um, the humanities. And so psychoanalysis posits Hamlet at its, as its, at its philosophical core, then we, the subject matter of psychoanalysis, are all Hamlet. Due to the presence of the deep allusions to Shakespeare, an exact number of quotations and allusions to the plays can never be arrived at. In fact, both psychoanalysis and Shakespeare would argue against exactness. Heinrich Heine wrote, Every era, when it receives new ideas, also receives new eyes, and sees lots of new things in the old mind. <clears throat> And Karl Marx wrote, that men make their own history, but they do not make it just as they please under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. There's a great deal of historical energy moving back and forth across the space between Heine's Bekommt, um, received, and Marx is gegeben, given. The historical subject stands on one side of the equation and the contemporary subject stands on the other side. A transfer of circumstances, knowledge, consciousness, culture, technology, and history occurs between them. The historical subject gives, given, and bequeaths, hands down, uh, überliefern, the circumstances of the contemporary subject who receives them, becoming. This is the influence right from Marx's point of view. This is historical materialism. However, there is in Heine's become a more active description of the contemporary subject's role in historical change, in historical exchange. Becoming means both to receive and to acquire. Even Marx's encounter for Handenden, sorry, my German's not that good either, <laughs> is not as active as acquire. The subject acquires new ideas and new eyes with which to see the past differently. He actively rereads and rewrites the past from his position on the receiving end of history. Yet, where do the new ideas arise? From history, says Marx. The subject in the present reinterprets history while his interpreting consciousness is simultaneously being constructed by the history that he is reinterpreting. The two sides of the equation are dialectically and inextricably bound. <clears throat> So if we have Shakespeare on one end giving to Freud, and Freud on the other end acquiring Shakespeare, 
Freud is looking back at Shakespeare and reinterpreting and rewriting. In fact, Shakespeare has never been the same since, since psychoanalysis, especially Hamlet. Yet where is Freud getting some of his ideas? From Hamlet, from Shakespeare. So they're working together. In which way is the influence working? In both directions, dialectically. <clears throat> Freud reads the Scottish King Duncan's lines, There's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. With these lines, Shakespeare problematizes appearances. Throughout his plays, he suggests the unconscious. Macbeth's unconscious becomes visible to him. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle towards my hand, come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which I now draw. Thou marshalest me the way I was going. And indeed, the unconscious marshals us all the way that we are going. Freud, having been influenced by Shakespeare, then sees Shakespeare with new eyes. His discovery of the unconscious inverts our understanding of ourselves. It also situates the process of the inversion at the center of all theory. No theory can escape the process of inversion, and indeed, all modern philosophy, the dialectic, deconstruction, relies on these inversions. In Freud's reading of Shakespeare, his new eyes peering into the Shakespearean Geisteswerken that formulates the Oedipus complex, the death drive, or the notion that progress is thwarted by its own success, that's his analysis of Lady Macbeth. It is Freud's reading of Shakespeare's early modern drama that plays a central role in the formation of our modern world. He dies over Cordelia. But, but Cordelia's already dead. Yes. Yeah, yeah I see. Yeah. Yes, he's, he's, it's sort of a reverse pietal that's going yeah. on there. It's, he's, he's right there on her. In fact, he's, he's at her, her mouth with a feather, thinking that she's still breathing. Oh, I see, I thought, yeah. yeah. The fact that this, the odd thing is that because, you know, and then you mentioned, of course, Freud, in a sense, dying in his daughter's eyes. But the, um, but the actual story on which, um, which Shakespeare was probably inspired by, as well as the old play of King Lear, was, was a contemporary story in which a woman called Cordelia, Annesley, um, did sort of rescue her aged father, whose two sisters were trying to swindle the mm. senile father. I don't know if you know that story. Mm -hmm. And it's a connection with Shakespeare because um, Cordelia Annesley marries Sir William Harvey, nothing to do with the doctor, but um, someone who had been married to the aged Countess of Southampton, the mother of 
Shakespeare's patron. So he would certainly have known that story. He would have known that. It's the story of three sisters that, that um, two of which were wicked sisters trying to swindle their senior father, and mm. the good sister was called Cordelia. And it's a surprisingly little known story. And that way, that way around, it does happen that the daughter mm. saves the father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. Um, two questions which possibly are related. The first one is, could you say something about Hegel's influence on Freud? Hegel's influence? On Freud. Mm -hmm. And the second question is, without Shakespeare, how much of the Freud that we know mm. would, would we have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the editors... The editors of um, the Great Shakespearean series, I wonder if I can even find that quickly, make a very large statement no, that's fine. Basically what they say is that without Shakespeare we wouldn't have had Freud and Marx at all. I think that's too large of a statement, I think it's too narrow of a statement because there were there were many, many um, different um, forms of literature and writers, literary um, greats that were influencing Freud and Marx, as well as philosophy and medicine in the case of um, in the case of Freud. But the particular Freud that we had is influenced strongly by Shakespeare, and Freud would have been different had there not been Shakespeare, and and that's partly what Hegelian. I, um, influence comes in. One of the things that I argue is that Shakespeare was di Hegelian dialectical avant la lettre. Um, obviously he hadn't read Hegel yet. <laughs> um, but that in Hegel we have this idea of the unity of opposites, of <coughs> being and nothingness collapsing into each other and fluttering back and forth effortlessly and that the opposites are inextricable. You know? We also have the idea that the self is identified by the other, in fact, by the recognition of the other. Right? So again, we have this inextricability of the opposites. Okay? Well, all throughout Shakespeare, the opposites are defining each other. So, for example, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a comedy, we have, at the wedding ceremony, the, the, the celebration of the comedic closure, a tragedy being played, Pyramus and Thisbe. Um, which, if it's played completely slapstick, totally slapstick, slapstick, I think they missed the point. I was seeing it in San Diego a few years ago, and the guy playing Thisbe at one point, to the point where he says, what, dead my dove? For a moment he went serious. And the audience had been just rolling in laughter. And for that moment, we all just dropped into, oh, this is a tragedy. And then came back out of it. You know? Romeo and Juliet, obviously one of the greatest tragedies ever, isn't there, in fact, a comedy in it. Yeah? The Capulets and the Montagues at the end clasp hands. And it's in the opening sonnet um, where Shakespeare is writing that it is through the death that the war of the youth, that the war will, will end, right? Every history play has a rising in it. What's going to happen in the fall is defined by the rise. In fact, that's part of what the ghosts are about. 
For every person that Richard III plucks off, that person will come back as a ghost. So the rise and the fall define each other, comedy and tragedy define each other, male and female define each other, to be or not to be define each other, all throughout Shakespeare. Um, <clears throat> I also looked in my thesis at Marx, and this absolutely and obviously defines Marx's work indirectly, because Marx was a, a left Hegelian, at least early in his writing. But I think that it also defines psychoanalysis, because the conscious is defined by the unconscious. There is a, a <clears throat> relationship of force going on inside of us between what we want to repress and, and, and the return of the repress. Yeah. So those are defining each other and creating what, we, what you see in front of you, what you see in the mirror every day, is, you know, these relationships of force. The life drive and the death drive are defining each other. Even the death drive itself, which is sometimes hard to understand, how could it be a move towards quiescence and at the same time a move towards aggression? Well, that's another dialectical uh, notion that's going on in there. Yeah. Oh, pass the mic back, I guess. Thank you. It's not working, okay. Um, yeah, um, you mentioned, I didn't know whether you meant biography when you said biology at one point. Did I say biology? Yeah. You did. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so, fine, no, no, because I want to know whether what you say made any sense in relation to that. Um, I'm very troubled recently by uh, the amount of, um, no, let's start, Shakespeare, we know virtually nothing about him, actually, thank God, I feel, as a teacher of literature, because it means that one can actually concentrate on the texts, and how they read us, and how we read each other through them, and so on. And I'm intrigued by recently how how obsessive the, mm -hmm. um, a kind of preoccupation with, with Freud's life um, mm -hmm. to explain this or that, rather than reading the texts as literary texts, which I think they support reading mm -hmm. as. Um, so I'm, I just want to suggest that I, it, what is intriguing with both of them is that I certainly notice that when we try to retreat to some kind of biographical explanation, for example, why Shakespeare wrote Hamlet mm -hmm. when he did, mm -hmm. um, it's often because we're trying actually to avoid being read by the text. Mm -hmm. I find that, that my students particularly seem to retreat to biography with all sorts of authors if they actually are finding themselves uncomfortable because of the greatness of the work. And I wonder if very much lately the same thing is going on with Freud, I don't know what this suggests about the relation in, in studies which link Freud and Shakespeare in these, in, in these ways. There seems to me to be something anxious about this preoccupation with um, why, with details of biography and why they produce the, the texts that they produce. So I, I'm sorry, I'm not sure whether there is a question in there, but it's, it's something that... that um, yes. There's a lot in what you're saying. There's at least three issues going on there. Um, one thing I could even say a bit about is, the, is Freud's um, participation in the authorship controversy, the Shakespearean authorship controversy, because that has come up recently. Um, the other thing I think also has to do with reader's, reader's response, us being read by the text. Um, and then finally, um, I think one of the questions that you could have asked directly is, 
why did I do a biographical reading of Freud? Yeah, yeah. Um, and am I anxious about it? <laughs> so the, I'll, I'll say a bit about the authorship controversy. Um, <clears throat> Freud, as I said, felt that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet because his father died, and then um, he, you know, he he felt he needed to then sublimate this, right? Okay. He based that on George Brandis's book that the father died before Freud wrote Ham sorry, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. Um, then Brandis came out with another book called Miniaturian sometime later that had new evidence that the father died actually after Hamlet was written. <laughs> and so that messed up the, um, that part of the theory. Um, Freud was upset by that. Ernest Jones, who wrote a book on this topic, told Freud, don't worry about it. It doesn't mess the theory up too much. Just, you know, keep going with it. Freud said, no, 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 we have a problem. We have to get to the bottom of this. So the way that he got to the bottom of this is he changed the author of Shakespeare's plays. He went along with the uh, J.T. Lani um, hypothesis, which it was, it was that the Earl of Oxford wrote it, the 17th Earl of Oxford or something like that, that he was the one that actually wrote the plays. So once Freud was convinced of that, he held on to it doggedly. I mean, he just continued holding on to that. Um, and in fact, even, even wrote to people at um, awkward moments, like when Ernest Jones's child died, he said, well, I think you should go, in, you should go look at the authorship controversy. And Jones said, I wish you would have told me something else to do that night. Um, and he told somebody else, I forgot who it was, that he was annoyed with him, that he still believed that Shakespeare wrote it. So the authorship controversy for uh, Shakespeare has obviously come up again. There's been a movie about it and, and all this. And of course, any... Um, Shakespeare and no Shakespeare was Shakespeare. We have to go into a bit of biography about Shakespeare to prove that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. For example, we have to show that he did have the type of education that he needed to write those plays. Because one of the ideas that people are saying on the other end of it is that he couldn't have written those plays without having gone to university. Well, his grammar school, like his year four, <laughs> was about the same as our university today. So we go into it a little bit there. Um, in my thesis, I don't go into Shakespeare's biography at all. And when I teach Shakespeare, I don't go into biography very much at all. Because I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement with you um, that with Shakespeare and also with Marx, it's not the place to go into biography. And especially with Shakespeare, the, the thing to do there is a close reading or a theoretical reading. So I like the idea also that you said about the plays reading us, right? So did um, Othello uh, hold his hand thus or thus, you know? Uh, is Hamlet, um, does he want to get rid of his solid, sullied, or sallied flesh, right? So <clears throat> because I'm a Marxist, I go with the sallied, you know, I go with the, the fight, you know? So that reads me, you know? So I like that. Now, why Freud and biography? Well, I didn't set out to do a biographical reading of Freud. Um, I didn't at all. I really set out to read. I read his collected works. I looked for the um, Shakespearean references in it. But what I kept coming back to is what I went into tonight. That it is psychoanalysis, the development of psychoanalysis is inextricably bound up with Freud's biography. I think that that is methodologically correct. I think that doing psychoanalysis, I think that studying psychoanalysis, I think psychoanalysis in itself is bound up with who we are psychologically. So that's why I did that. Um, can I come back 
Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm afraid um, when you're talking about Hegel, I tend to think Jonathan Miller did one sort of critique of Shakespeare, saying that when Shakespeare, in the midst of life, we are in death. Mm -hmm. Contrasting with Racine, where you get tragedy. Mm. Always, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some senses, um, you know, it's, um, you know, I just take that as a statement about living, mm -hmm. unless you're in chronic depression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but um, the other thing I was thinking, you know, I do take psychoanalytic theories seriously. And I think, in some way, it is, uh, listening to you, we're talking about Freud making a jump from the personal to the universal mm -hmm. as a sublimation. Mm -hmm. And there is a point that, there's a danger that, um, you know, um, psychoanalysis, there are various fields. Mm. And, um, you know, there's Jungian, there's... And the danger is that someone moves in a probably a very self-centered way to seeing the world in terms of the construction of their own drives and forms of repression. Mm -hmm. Jung wasn't probably so hung up on his mother. Mm. Mm. And, you know, and there's also the other thing, the question is, um, you know, there's the whole literature on Freud not being able to quite cope with his memory of his father. Mm. You know, mm. you would look at his thing. But I also want to make another point. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, there's no way you can look at Shakespeare and work out what the man's basic underlying structures are. Mm -hmm. It's amazingly wide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while in your, the danger with Freud is that he, you know, putting the centrality of the Oedipus complex and the death drive, well, I actually think the central concept concepts are repression and transference. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, sorry to go on, this is, I'm lecturing. That's and there's no yeah. such thing as a self-analysis because the transference has never been analyzed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, sorry. Yes, there's, there's a lot in, in what you said there. Um, yes, obviously there are different views. For Freud, he said if you don't believe in the Oedipus complex and you don't believe in that being central, you haven't, um, cro you, you, you don't have the shibboleth of psychoanalysis. And that's, of course, why, why uh, Jung had to leave, Adler had to leave, uh, Reich had to leave, you know. So, um, one of the things I say in my thesis in the beginning is what, what this thesis is not. Um, it is not a discussion of the different types of psychoanalysis or really a discussion of psychoanalytic, um, theory and practice, really what I'm looking at, and I didn't look at almost any other, a little bit of Laplanche, but almost any other theorist except Freud. I was really looking at what he was, you know, what he was saying. Um, I know there's a lot more to what you said, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I'm also intrigued by um, the connection you made with Aphrodite in the judgment of Paris and the notion of women in silence, mm -hmm. um, partly because it has a long tradition through Plutarch's conjugal precepts that a woman should be known not for her beauty, but for her ability, like a tortoise, to remain silent and in the shell. <laughs> and they say, testudinae nulla lingua, that the woman should not speak. Mm. And um, that goes on to my interest in Jean-Martin Charcot, when uh, Freud, uh, under his mentorship, went to the Salpetriere Asylum, where mm -hmm. women there, undergoing psychoanalytic treatment, especially the hysteric, would not speak. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in this whole idea of the death uh, connection that you made, but mm -hmm. also the silence of being a resistance or repression of mm -hmm. the idea that the doctor could not get the woman to speak out her own uh, mm -hmm. condition. So I just wanted to bring that in as another layer to what you've been saying. Thank you, yes. I quite interesting. Yes, the women at, um, at Charcot's clinic 
were speaking, but in a physical language. <laughs> they weren't given subjectivity, but they were definitely speaking. And there's that, there's that uh, painting of the woman doing the arch and you know, all the men are, you know. <laughs> there's definitely something she's saying to them. In fact, she may even be performing that at some level for them. Um, but it's not, there's not a place for her to have subjectivity and power at that moment to be able to say, this is what's going on with me. And in fact, what's going on with me has to do with what you guys do to me. You know, I don't go much into that. In I don't go into that at all as my in my thesis. But yes, thank you. Okay. Um, I was just wondering again with the three caskets mm -hmm. that you mentioned whether there's a link between the silence of linking it back to the Shakespeare, the silence of women. Um, and the relative silence of their death in Shakespeare tragedies and whether it actually makes uh, the death drive a less certain thing because there's things about how the way women die in Shakespearean tragedies as opposed to men is often silent to the extent that isn't certainly articulated like with Cordelia, mm. she kind of breathes a bit afterwards and mm. you don't see Lady Macbeth die and there's mm. other examples and whether it, it kind of renders the death drive Mm. If if silence is synonymous with death, then you don't really know it's happened. It, mm -hmm. Do you think? That well, what Freud was doing in that essay is he's saying, okay, we have a casket. What does that mean? That means woman. Okay, we have three caskets. Well, that's the three women. Okay, what are the three women? Well, they're silent. The third one's silent. What does silence mean? It means death. So he's working through his his chain of associations. Um, I didn't stop to analyze that. I was really working more with where the death instinct fit in the history of his theory and where um, uh, Merchant of Venice and King Lear fit in the history. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and think about how the different women die. I, I don't think women are silent in general in Shakespeare. Um, in fact, I think in many ways Shakespeare was a feminist before, before the time. But I'd have to go back and sort of do a cataloging of how all the different women die, and yeah. so I mean, I'll, I'll consider that. Almost reversing the the three of women, death, and silence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll take a look at that. Yeah. There is the intermediate kind of link, so from the three caskets to the to the three women, mm -hmm. and then Freud goes into a kind of mythology of nature. Mm -hmm. So he talks about the Greek fates, the and preceding that, the Morai and the Horai, and these are goddesses <coughs> of nature and of time, and of course of life and death. And so he even talks about the goddess Kali as a kind of, you know, as a goddess of life and death. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and that's then, and then he comes back to King Lear after going through this very kind of abstract mm -hmm idea about a sort of mythology of nature. Mm -hmm. So it's slightly, you know, it's not quite as straightforward as silence, women, death, you know, but there's this whole other thing about, you know, time and, <coughs> and the seasons and fertility mm -hmm. and life and death. You know. In another dream that he had, which I think is written up in Interpretation of Dreams, he dreamed that there were three women in the kitchen, um, and the third one was uh, making canoodle, which I think is battered chicken or something like that. Canadle. Dumplings, yeah. And so and she's going like this, which is the, the memory that he had um, of, of what his mother did. And he says in his analysis of the dream that they were the three fates. 
Yeah, the day with the three faces. So there's a lot. Yeah, there is a lot more to the connection. We've, we've been here all night, but there's <laughs> 390 pages. To it. <laughs> I think this will be um, the last. Uh, I was just wondering how far you uh, would take this parallel between the caskets and women uh, and the silent woman, because in fact the lead casket speaks. Mm -hmm. It says, "Who chooses me must give and has mm -hmm. all he has." Mm -hmm. Um, so how does this fit? With the how far I would take it or how far Freud took it? Both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I disagree with many of Freud's readings of the Shakespeare plays. And my job was not to do my own reading of the play. Um, I do that in my, in my last chapter when I'm working with critical theory. My job was really to faithfully stick to what Freud was doing, mm -hmm. what he was saying. Because um, I completely disagree with, um, with his interpretation of Hamlet. other ideas about that. Um, not only does a lead casket speak, but Portia tells him which one is the right casket. <laughs> so, there's a whole lot of speaking in, going on, including breaking the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we should look forward to, to inviting you back to give your interpretations of, of Hamlet. I think we. Um, and in the meantime, thanks very much, and, and just. You know, if you just give some